Welcome to Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berlumblad, and with me, Richard Allen. This is our 16th episode for 2022, and we thought we would spend it talking a little bit about something that's still in the future, but seems to be on the horizon. And it's a continuation of the session we did on network neutrality. Um, tell us a little bit about what we see happening now. Yeah, it's something that's sort of been there in the past and is rearing its ugly head again. So the, the European Commission is running a consultation on the financial relationship between telecoms providers and internet service providers. And uh, I was thinking, well, I, I wonder if they're going to look at the fact that the, the reason we buy and that we'll pay a telecoms company 30, 40, 50 euros a month is we get these fabulous internet services. So so maybe they want the telecoms company to take some money and give it to the to the internet service providers. But no, no. it's the other way around. They, they, the other way around. They're looking at it and saying, well, you know, we want to get the internet companies to hand over some money to telecoms companies uh, to, well, they say to invest in their infrastructure, but, you know, that's something we need to unpick. Is it to make them more profitable or is it actually to invest in infrastructure? Yes. Um, but that's the proposal. They said they'll consult on it at the first half of 2023, that they're going to run a consultation. And they say it's something that you and I have experienced. It's come up multiple times over the years. You know, where do we get telecoms investment? We get it from the internet companies because the internet companies are creating the demand for bits and bytes and people like Netflix in particular tend to be the target because they, they are streaming videos that's seen as high bandwidth. And it's one of those things which kind of at first blush sounds like it has some kind of logic, but then very quickly it falls apart. But let's, <laughs> let's try to reconstruct that logic though, because we, yeah. we, we need to understand, you know, uh, the arguments at their best. So, so, um, so let's, let's start with this telco argument. I mean, Ethno recently published a reporter statement in which they said that half of all network traffic was attributable to only six companies. Yes. It's Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Netflix and Microsoft, if I remember correctly. So those six companies uh, account for 50% of all network traffic. Yeah. And so the conclusion from that was that in order for them to continue to benefit from the infrastructure, the network that's there, that's enabling their entire business models, they should contribute their fair share to the build out and investment in that same infrastructure. Is, is, is that the best way we can again, and, and let's let's flip that round again and say, you know, it, then what they've proven is that the reason that people are giving them money for an internet connection is primarily because of the services they get from those six companies. It's those oh, yeah, six yeah. companies that are attracting people to buy internet subscriptions as consumers. So, but but their logic is, yeah, you're right. Their, the logic that they give us is, look, you know, you're putting the bits and bytes down. It's a bit. It's a bit like the idea of. I don't know if, if you know if you're sending all the traffic down a road. If you've got lots of heavy goods vehicles driving down my road, then you should pay for the road because you're the one who's using it the most. I mean, that's sort of the logic they're applying. But as I say, I think that you can sort of see why people might be attracted by that idea. You're using this infrastructure, therefore you should pay for it. But as I say, I, I, the internet just doesn't. It's not like heavy goods vehicles down a road. It's a really different model. Yeah, and and. and it, it does seem somewhat surprising because that's not even how roads work. No. I mean, that's roads are, are public works. And is there, is there something here we can... So we could unpick this in different ways and uh, continue to sort of dig down in what the rationale would be. What is the fairest possible argument that you can make? And you could say that, you know, these telecom companies used to be 
natural monopolies and public utilities before they were privatized somewhere around the 80s and 90s. And so if they were public companies, would that change your view? So I think you've actually put your finger on one of the foundational challenges. It's again another classic area where you have public policy shooting off in all different directions that are contradictory to each other. And so, so the thing that governments are concerned about, and, and you can see there's a logic for that, is that telecoms companies are not able to raise the money to put the investment in to upgrade their networks fast enough. That's the public interest, is faster, better networks. And, and Europe, but, but what the, what the uh, um, governments did around Europe back in the day was to say, well, we're going to create a competitive market. We're going to privatize all of these companies and our interest is in getting the cheapest possible internet subscriptions for consumers. And therefore, they, they, they created a market that prioritizes, you know, bargain basement internet connections, frankly, over investment. So they've created the problem of lack of incentive for investment because telecom companies will say, look, I, you know, I can't charge the consumer anymore because there's a bunch of other companies that will then go and steal my subscribers. And so we did move away from a world where you know, government in, in the old days, government could have set the price for a consumer at a level that was sufficient for investment. We moved away from that very tightly regulated price structure to one in which you know, there are some, there's some regulation around the wholesale costs, but there's all these competing retailers and the retailers are competing on the cheapest possible price to the consumer. And lo and behold, <laughs> on that basis, it can be quite a struggle for them to raise the money for investment. But most of them are profitable. So no, it's not about the profit, right? Because I think, you know, Deutsche Telekom, 30 billion euros in profit, France Telecom, around the same, and even the smaller ones seem to be profitable as well. So, so it's not necessarily about the fact that they're bleeding money and their, ex their existing business model is working. It's that they're not getting the money for future investment yep. in the networks. But if you look at... For example, if you read the annual report from, from France Telecom, one of the things they say is that the greatest growth area they have is fiber to the home. That's yeah. what people want. It grows at, I think it was around 20% year on year. And so if there's like a 20% year on year increase in demand for a particular infrastructure, isn't it then just a question of over how long a time you want to have your return on an investment? Exactly. I mean, there are ways of raising the money, and there are companies doing it. I mean, the, the fiber investment is going in. in. In the UK, there are you know, a bunch of different companies that are going in there. So you're right, they can raise the money. I mean, some of those, candidly, may end up sort of going bankrupt and then being their infrastructure will get then folded into a successor company because some of them do seem to be priced very, very aggressively as lost leaders in order to get people on there. But that's that's a problem for those companies. They've still managed to get the investment. The market out there looks at fibre infrastructure in particular as, as a worthwhile investment. I think, again, if we strip away a lot of this, it, it really should, we should sort of bring it back to the debate that we're talking about European telecoms companies and largely US internet services. So, so you're right, I think there's one way to look at this and say this is all about taxing US internet companies in order to boost the profits of European telecoms companies. Uh, so an aggressive statement, but I, you know, that's, that's the way it'll look through the lens of a telecoms company, uh, through the lens of an internet service provider rather that you're, you just want to tax us to give money to your companies. And the reason you're comfortable doing that Mr. Thierry Breton, the commissioner in charge of this, who used to be the CEO of France Telecom, is that basically you do, as the European Commission or the European institutions, 
you want to give more money to your domestic champions, Deutsche Telekom, France Telekom, Telecom Italia, Telefonica, etc. There's like a natural political instinct that they have. And it would also then dovetail with another change, political change that we've seen recently, which is a return to the 1970s industrial policy paradigm in which you know, the entire European Union and many of the member states are now considering industrial policy again as a core thing. And that's why this could pop up right now, for example, right? That's right. And, and, and we all talk about it. COVID's changed things. I mean, I'm, we're in, sitting in the United Kingdom where, you know, with, with barely an eyebrow being raised, the government has just decided to spend tens of billions of pounds subsidizing uh, energy bills. And the German government have done similar. Uh, COVID sort of broke the dam of saying we... we you know, we can take large chunks of government money and sort of direct them in particular directions because in the case of energy, our entire industrial sector, you know, has to be kept going and therefore we're going to intervene dramatically in, in what was also a privatised market, actually. But there they're doing it interesting with government money. Uh, and actually, again, maybe some parallels here that one of the, certainly the debates in the UK is some people politically are saying tax the energy companies upstream and, and use that to subsidise it. But our conservative government, right-wing government in the UK, said, no, 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 no. In this case, we're going to take the money from public finances and, and subsidise energy. But we're definitely in a world now, 2022, where you know the idea of moving big chunks of money around for some greater public uh, good that will come out of industrial strategy is, I think, more prevalent than, than it has been for what, since the 1970s, really, 1980s, when it fell, fell out of fashion. And we've had this sort of 30-year period where it's all been market, 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 you know, sink or swim. Mm -hmm. uh, telecoms company, if you can't make it, tough, you know, uh, to one where there's this sort of much more interventionist mood. And it's also important, it seems to me, to, to explore the telecom company's uh, structure because to, to a large degree, they, they have hired an enormous amount of people. There are many people who work for, for example, Deutsche Telekom and Orange and other telecom companies. So to, to what degree is this not just an industrial policy measure, but also a kind of labor market intervention? Yeah, I think there's no doubt, again, whenever there are suggestions that these large champion companies, again, they're not public utilities in the, in the technical sense, but they have a sort of quasi-public utility status. You know, redundancies at one of these big telecoms companies is headline news, and there is a demand for government intervention. Uh, uh, that happens, I think, in most European countries. They, they can't, you know, yeah, you say private company Telefonica lays off 2,000 people. That shouldn't be a matter for government intervention, but if ever that occurs, there will be people sort of crying out for and, and assuming that it would be correct for the government to intervene. So they do hold this special status, even though they're technically in private ownership. So there seems to be an obvious solution here, uh, and it's, it's confusing why we're not discussing that, and that is to say to the telecom companies that, okay, you need to spin off all of your infrastructure and do what was used you know, we called structural separation back in the day. It was discussed in the OECD and elsewhere. And put all of your investment into a network company. And then uh, what we will do is we'll offer shares in that network company to the online service providers so that they can start owning the infrastructure. Because they already do, right? They own infrastructure, all these yeah. online service providers. And now you're being provocative, Nicholas. So, yeah, so, so because <laughs> the other area of this industrial policy is, and it's a really curious one, is a real reluctance uh, sometimes to give up ownership of these national champion telecoms companies. I like that idea. I think that's perfectly fair and reasonable. 
that you know Google or Alphabet, Meta, all of these companies, Netflix should be able to take a slice of national telecoms infrastructure, and I think they might make a good job out of it. I mean, after all, we know there are already huge investors in telecoms infrastructure around the world. They know that business like the back of their hands because they are such heavy consumers of those services. They know how it works, but. The idea that the European Commission would permit it. I mean, there are already you know, incredible sensitivities around you know, cross-border mergers between these different companies within Europe. Uh, and so the idea that someone would create a system in which, which they would welcome that US investment, I think, well, well, it, but it, I mean, uh, an argument like that would, it seems to me, articulate at least what it is that drives the the policy impetus here because if you say that you know uh, these companies have already according to, to some surveys like the analysis mason study but from a couple of years ago invested more than you know 300 in, in the in the realm of hundreds of billions of euro into infrastructure subsea cables data centers there's so much there so they might not be entirely opposed to saying okay let's do a joint venture where we invest in this infrastructure because investing in the infrastructure might make it easier for them to optimize it for the delivery of their services. They would also get a say over where you build out, etc. And if you do that and the answer is, no, we just want a fee, then it seems <laughs> as if that, that, that seems to me to, to uh, almost make this into a bit of a trade issue. Yeah, and I think it is. And that, that obviously, like with other things we've seen in this area, there's a risk of retaliation if we sort of go down this route, if it's seen as a sort of taxing, in effect, unfairly uh, of, say, foreign companies to benefit a, a domestic company. But I like that. I think we should work it up as a model, maybe in response to the European Commission's consultation. I think we should propose that. We will... Oh, we, we will, won't do anything, but we will just put the idea out there and say that there seems, to be, to, yeah. there seems to be other ideas and other models that could but, accomplish the said explicit policy objective. If right? the purpose is investment, yeah. yeah. But then you run into another issue, which, which again, I can see there will be another set of objections to the idea of the big internet platforms owning the infrastructure which is our old friend the net neutrality debate mm. uh, and curiously this consultation the European Commission has managed to unite I think the big platforms and the digital rights activists in Europe who, who correctly have come out and said oh hang on a minute you know this this looks like it's going down a route that would threaten net neutrality and and the, the sort of core of net neutrality is the idea look at I as a consumer I pay a fair price for my internet connection uh, I pay the price, I bought it from the telco, and then I can access everything on, a, on an equal basis. That's the idea. And so, of course, the idea of, you know, if, if the European Commission forced uh, commercial relationships between certain platforms, a subset of platforms and telecoms operators, the fear is obviously that's part of that package. It seems unlikely if you said, look, Netflix, you need to pay <laughs> to, to invest in this network because you're pushing most of the traffic down it, then, then why is Netflix going to do that in a way where it benefits its smaller competitors? Netflix is going to have a voice and a seat at the table. Uh, and so this idea that we would have platforms owning chunks of that core access infrastructure, I think will raise a whole bunch of concerns. You, you could create a structure in which they're prohibited from doing so, but you can see why people would feel nervous that look if Netflix has paid for 20% of the network costs what are they going to get out of it 
But I, 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 I agree. I, I think that that problem is actually larger with the fee structure than with the co-ownership structure. Because yeah. with the fee structure, you have to have some kind of sanction towards those that do not pay the proportionate amount or the proportionate fee. So for them, you have to be able to cut them off. Yeah. But for the ownership structure, you can require that the open internet rules still apply and that network neutrality applies. And you don't need the same sanction problem. You can just say that the people who have offered, been offered to buy into this infrastructure are going to be operating it as well and choosing what happens to yeah. it and, and and it's not impossible that that would be an interesting model uh, for investment for for the online service providers yeah. I, I do understand what you're saying so I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm being slightly <laughs> ridiculous African. I'm being slightly ridiculous but yeah. but I do think it's interesting to think about um, what happens to uh, to a site like Wikipedia yeah which has a lot of traffic and it doesn't at this point in time have a lot of band with needs because it's mostly text but why shouldn't the wikipedia evolve in the future to also be a lot of video and a lot of other things and at that point how would the wikipedia survive in a world where those who do not pay don't get on the network uh, i i think they would survive because the european commission if they go ahead with this proposal will carefully craft a uh, a sort of statement or a, a sort of policy language that only captures the famous Fang type company, however you want to name them, but we'll capture capture. We've got to add TikTok in there now, and we sort of Fang T, Fang T M, Microsoft. Yeah. So it would only capture those uh, companies that they want. Actually, I'm sure Microsoft would negotiate a, a get out because they would argue that their bandwidth uses for. Uh, commercial services rather than for consumer-facing services. I'm sure. Well, then they would know. have to pretend they don't own Xbox anymore, which yeah, would yeah. be an interesting move. Yeah. If it, well, if Xbox big enough on its own, but the bulk of their of the Microsoft traffic, I think, is Azure hosted services, and I imagine things like Office 365. Anyway, you can see where we go with this. There'll be this sort of god awful drafting process where I think the political intent, something always referred to, I think it's very clear that the political intent would be to capture. Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Google Search, YouTube, Netflix, etc. Uh, and then there'll be all this, and so that they'll have a definition that definitely captures them. And then there'll be a huge amount of kind of lobbying on the edges. Do you include Amazon Web Services, given that, you know, and Azure, given that they'll have lots of European customers, and so they're going to pass the cost on to a European business if they're having to pay extra bandwidth. What do you do about iPlayer in the, U in the UK? Well, we're outside the EU now, but iPlayer-like services. What do you do about the video streaming services offered by national broadcasters? Mm. You can already see the language, can't you? It will only apply to services offered in multiple countries of the European Union that are video, blah, blah, blah. You can just see how they're going to craft some definitions. They, could, or they could use existing definitions in the yeah. DSA and DMA, I suppose. Exactly, so exactly, it's a gatekeeper exactly. legislation. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting, uh, but there's, there's another aspect of this that's uh, somewhat interesting to think about, and that is that there is, uh, you know, let's go back to legitimate concerns. Mm. I, I want to start there. So one legitimate concern for many European governments is how do they build the network out not just to be uh, have the reach to reach everywhere and reach everyone which is sort of a democratic thing I admire but also have the robustness to be able to carry industry 4.0 applications mm. but for that particular use case where you build out the infrastructure there is a way for the infrastructure investors to recoup their investment because they can differentiate their services on quality for industrial players. Mm. So in business-to-business, -business, network neutrality does not apply, which means that if you wanted to recoup your investment in infrastructure that is strong and robust enough to carry industrial applications, 
there's already a means to differentiate your services and charge differently depending on what kind of uh, quality of service you want as an industry. So there is this opportunity to charge on the one side for the industries who are paying the customers, but now you want an opportunity to charge on the consumer side. Yeah. What, what, how does that work? Well, so, so I think actually this is one of the areas that um, where the, I think it's policy's highest risk. That at the moment, there's a whole hidden set of investments going in that most sort of as, as members of the public, we're not particularly aware of them. But the networks around the world, including in Europe, have been continually upgraded by uh, people adding in all kinds of bits of hardware that optimize the network and make the packets get to you most quickly. So if you or I are sitting here using YouTube, we don't, you know, back in the day, we would say, can I have a video from YouTube? And the network would have to carry our request back to some server in the United States. And that server in the United States would send a bunch of packets that would go across the, the Atlantic and then go across all of the different networks to get to us. If I access a popular video now today from YouTube, it only goes as far as a local data center owned by my telecommunications company, where all of the popular videos are cached on hardware that YouTube paid to install and have worked on with the telecoms company. So they've actually put all of this infrastructure in to optimize the network because it's great for YouTube. They, they want the video to be super responsive. It's great for the telecoms company because they're using far less bandwidth and the network is, is under far less strain because of that. And that has been quietly going on for years. All of the big companies. And, and it can be used by others than YouTube too, because others, the yeah. cash is necessarily yeah. neutral, right? There, well, well, some there are some, be, there are some, be, there yeah. are some that are neutral, and there and there are services like Akamai and others who did all the sort of edge caching for years. Yeah. And then there are some that are actually dedicated now. So part of the, you know, you know why these big companies can offer their service and it can run so quickly is that the big companies will also put in like super customized, dedicated hardware, which is arguably not neutral, but uh, they've done that and, and everybody's been a winner because of it. The consumer wins, uh, the, the telco wins, so people who potentially don't win are competitors who are still, you know, having to pull the data all the way down from a data center. But, you know, that infrastructure has gone in. And again, if you're going to go in there and say, look, now we're going to make it a taxing relationship where the telecoms company is demanding money from you with with menaces with all the force of law like that potentially is going to really mess up these super constructive relationships where telecoms operators and internet companies have quietly been getting on with it you know building out great hardware to reduce bottlenecks and serve the consumer better but arguably then what is happening is that this is driven by companies who see that they can improve their bottom line because mm -hmm. They, well, you always seek some kind of regulatory advantage, I suppose, if you can seek it. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, no, no, I think, I think both, you know, in, in this case, it's a classic business interest. You know, yeah. you, you, you've got a telecoms company who wants, you know, who wants to, to deliver the packets as efficiently and cheaply as possible and not pay for transit when they don't have to. And you've got an internet service that wants to get out there as quickly as it can to customers because it'll win more customers, show more ads, make more revenue. They're both aligned around a classic business incentive and it's led to investment, positive, good investment. Yes. And any other internet service that comes along now that, that has got a bit of resource is going to do the same thing. Uh, they, and they're going to take the technology that the big platforms have invested in and they can basically copy that technology or they can work with you know, other people in the ecosystem to put put technology in the shared infrastructure. And on the same logic, the telecoms companies, if they 
see that this is useful and valuable are going to want to work with them. So it's created a really, you know, a, a profit-fueled motive to improve the networks. Yeah. I like so I want to come back to the whole tension between services and infrastructure and there's one argument in particular I want to want to discuss and so if we move this to another context and we say uh, let's talk about the electricity grid so we have the electricity grid built out and a lot of the electricity grid is being used to heat apartments as uh, at least in Sweden, <laughs> it's <Yeah>. very cold. <laughs> so, uh, so it's being used to heat apartments, and that's being done by, for example, radiators. Now, you could argue then with the same logic that the electricity companies should, because of the wear and tear on the electricity grid, get paid by the radiator producers, yes, the people who are producing that. But now, the the reality is that there are many different companies that produce radiators. So you have you have hundreds of different producers of radiators, um, but you have more of a market concentration in the internet space. Is the market concentration in itself an argument to go from the electricity model to this new proposed fee model? What is that anything that should be taken into account? I mean, it shouldn't. Again, if the principle is that we want to have a two-sided market where the consumer of the bits and bytes pays and the producer of the bits and bytes pays, then there isn't actually a logic to say, let's just confine it to the big companies. They should all pay, uh, if that's your, your view, that it's a genuine two-sided market. Because nothing really changes with the market cost. But yet still, that's one of the arguments that I think both you and I saw the most, this idea that very few companies are responsible for a lot of the traffic. Now, yeah. if there were only three radiator producers, yeah. would that matter for I, the electricity grid? I, I don't think it holds up. I mean, I think the market concentration, again, is politics. It's, it's about where are those companies based, the, the, the handful of companies. And so, again, if, if the European internet market was dominated by five or six companies generating all the bits and bytes and they were European, uh, we'd have a very different debate because it'd be European telcos versus European internet providers. And as I say, I think some heavy bandwidth users in Europe, the, the streaming services that are domestic, will be lobbying you know, tooth and nail not to be caught up in this. Uh, and actually, that's one of the things that might cause them to abandon it after they've done their consultation. They might get to the point of saying, well, we don't have a logic for including these American companies and excluding the Europeans, and therefore maybe we're not going to go ahead with it. So I think it's not the concentration per se, it's concentration plus the fact that the winners in the internet services market are not European. I think that's driven us to this point. So it would be interesting to see, for example, how a Spotify thinks about this. Yeah. Because they, they stream a fair bit, although music is easier to stream. Oh, but they're moving into other segments as mm. well. So in that situation, you would have a company that's European and streams and uses the networks. And it's through that use, it's grown. But it's not necessarily going to appreciate this proposal. Is there, so is there, is there a commercial mm. logic to this? For Is there any reason so, for the online service providers to adopt this? Can it... Would they adopt this? Because you made this point earlier that you know it might be very hard for new entrants to come into a market if there is a fee structure that you have to deal with as you grow. Yeah, you create sort of a barrier to entry for new companies. So, so is that a reason for them to commercially consider this? Yes, I think if you were to you know look at it purely from a commercial point of view, the logic for any internet 
service, or, the, or we'll use the phrase, won't we, the OTT, the over-the-top service, which oh, is basically yeah. a, a service <laughs> that pro- provides stuff to people over the internet. Well, as we've just discussed, the, the top over which you may be travelling may include your own infrastructure sitting in the telecoms company's data centres, but we don't like, we'll ignore that little detail. So um, the only the incentive for you as, as one of these internet services to say that you do want to start paying would only be if you're going to gain some kind of commercial advantage. Otherwise, of course, the logic is why change the status quo? The status quo suits you fine. So what kind of advantage might you want to gain by paying? And there are two, really. So one is raising the barrier to entry for others. So that would be, yes, I'm Spotify, but I I think Apple Music is going to bulk at paying the fees, is going to refuse to pay the fees. And therefore, as long as it applies to Apple Music as well as Spotify, I'm going to be okay with it because my judgment is then Apple Music is going to get out of a bunch of markets and leave them to me. So there's a sort of, you know, is it, is it a barrier to entry? Are, are there people sort of positioned close to your market scale that you, you, know, you think would uh, not accept the hit? Or do you think you're better able to absorb the cost of it than they are? And that you'll win customers, they'll lose customers. So one is that sort of competitive barrier to entry. And the other, frankly, is the thing that the digital rights activists are concerned about, that you say, look, once I start paying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And so once I start paying in, I am actually going to try and shape the network so they favour my service over other people's services. Uh, and so I think that's a genuine suspicion, because again, you're a business, you're there to make money if you're a Spotify or a YouTube or whatever. So you may, you know, uh, support net neutrality in principle, and that's fine, but once the European Commission have come to you and said, well, we're abandoning net neutrality, because this is abandoning net neutrality once they start you know, getting you all to pay for it, uh, effectively, I think, they may technically try and say, you know, we're riding all the three horses at the same time. We want this hyper-competitive market that keeps consumer costs down to the minimum. We want net neutrality, and we want to tax the internet services and give it to the telecom. They might try and do that, but something's got to give there. Uh, and so I think if... The Commission have sort of moved away effectively from net neutrality in its purest form. As an internet company, even if you support net neutrality, you may say, well, I'm paying the money now, I've got to get something for it. That's my business bottom line. Uh, and, and again, there could be ways to try and prevent that, but yeah. But hard. Yeah. yeah. So, so th- that seems to suggest that not only is this slightly murky in terms of the motivation, because for the industrial network to be built out, you already have the possibility to differentiate and so recoup your investment. But for the consumer one, it's actually driven by the demand from consumers, so that recoups your investment. But it could also lead to a situation where you're actually cementing the oligopolistic nature of some of these markets, where the actual legal result. I mean, it's it's so interesting because in a sense, it is like you win a market by competing and you keep a market by being legislated. Yeah. yeah. Once you're once you're in the leading position, you you well, there is a logic of, of trying to get regulation to build fences around it. And everyone's always watching out for that. But, but that, you know, it's been repeated over the years. You've seen it happen again and again because you are playing to a genuine logic. You know, the, the first people who you know, built oil wells uh, would just drill a hole in the ground the oil would come out and then there were fires and disasters and so of course the safety standards for oil wells were increased over time but then that means that fewer and fewer people can actually afford to build an oil well and you start concentrating so it's, it's repeated over the years uh, but here it feels a bit like we don't have that problem at the moment you know it is still a pretty open market 
and yet we may be you know, deliberately uh, entering into a world where we allow people to create more barriers. So fast forward 10 years, if all of these fee structures are in place, um, we end up with something that looks much more like the pharma market. Uh, with um, a, a few large companies that have outsourced innovation to startups that are licensed or bought up whenever they come up with something new and interesting. And for a new company to grow to the size of the core companies in the market is going to be uh, very difficult. So the, the rise of a ByteDance or a TikTok at that point would actually be much, much harder. I think potentially, yes, if you have a, a sort of I mean, there's already relationships between the large service providers and the telcos. But if that's kind of been enshrined in regulation, I think the risk is that that, that becomes even more uh, a sort of closed shop relationship between the paying companies and the telcos. And they, they almost have a joint incentive to keep the others out. Well, you know, the company that, just think about this for incentives. So you've got YouTube that's in the tent, is paying the telcos for its traffic. You've got somebody else who comes along with lots of video traffic but they're not quite at the level where they have to start paying. You know, from a telco point of view and a YouTube point of view, they now have aligned incentive to keep that person out because they're not paying. So the same logic we're having now, which is, you know, why the hell should these internet companies be able to use the network without paying? It still applies. And if we've created a definition that exempts smaller companies, well, we now have two very significant players who are incentivized to, to build networks that, don't help those smaller companies, the freeloaders. We now have a new set of freeloaders. And so the, the hard question or the hard political question then becomes, is this a price that the European Union is willing to pay in order to keep its national champions and increase and deepen the regulation around technology, do you think? Yeah. So I think we're going to see that middle of next year. So I, I should have said there's one other instance where I think the big internet service providers would want to pay, which is if they genuinely thought that the market was failing, that the infrastructure was too poor in a particular country, that it needed that investment. And so I think maybe that's the, the test. So, that, so I think and that maybe the question we'll go through next year as the Commission consults. Look, if they can prove that there is genuinely a failure, then, then there's an argument, you know, the infrastructure is real. there is no way to raise the money. It's not just that you know, telecoms companies don't want to take on the debt or are not creative enough, but you cannot raise the money and the infrastructure is falling behind and YouTube and Netflix are going to break. If they could make that proof, they would have, I think, a case to, to sort of go down this uh, path. But then I think actually Netflix and YouTube and others would want to invest because they, they really are going to lose customers. If it's more a question of, look, you know, the investment's going to happen anyway, we just want to take a slice out of these internet companies to help the telecoms companies, then I think we're in a different world. And there is a much more marginal call. Uh, um, I mean, again, there are parallels in the publisher debate, the other great European champions. You know, then the publishers have been using mechanisms like so-called link tax and copyright legislation, things like that, to, again, to extract revenue. Same logic as, as uh, you know, Google is freeloading off of our news content and therefore they've got to pay for it. Uh, actually, the Google News example is very instructive here potentially. Again, you can see the logic. Yeah, they're freeloading, they're showing the news content, they make the money off the advertising. But I think most people would agree that, that some of the moves in that area were counterproductive. And, it, and you know, we haven't demonstrated that taking some money from the internet services is producing a more sustainable model for, for publishers. 
sort of why do we think that the same would apply here? You know, either there is a business case for the investment, driven by the fact that the services people want to use are more and more successful. In fact, yeah. arguably, if Meta gets to keep its money to build the metaverse, that's what's going to create the compelling service that somebody's going to pay a hundred euros a month for. Uh, to their telecoms provider, not to Meta, to the telecoms provider to get the bandwidth and the quality of service they need for that. But, yeah. Well, interesting. And I, I also, it has to do, I mean, there's another trend here that's interesting to mention, is the financialization of the telco space, where there's a lot of discussion around whether or not the telcos should spin off their network assets, uh, assets in different ways and present that as a way to to show growth in the areas where it really matters, fiber, et cetera. And, and you could imagine, of course, that that financialization and the spin-offs would be much more attractive if you could attach to those also alternative revenue sources like uh, network fees in different ways, right? Yeah, so, so the, there is a low margin business, which is the provision of the basic access. And then there used to be, I think this is, this is the real challenge, there used to, used to be a higher margin business in things like phone calls and stuff. And so the companies have been struggling and they do look, there's these very high margin businesses on internet services, although their margins are shrinking. Uh, and then they look at their margins sort of coming down as, as they've more and more focused on these basic subscriptions rather than being able to sell value added services. Um, but you're right, I mean, from a pure sort of financing point of view, it may make more sense to separate those two out, to be honest and say, Here's a very, very reliable, long-term infrastructure, low-margin business, but never going to go out of business. And here's a higher-risk, higher-margin business that's all about services and things on top. Uh, and, and somehow we need to kind of disentangle those two. And then we're back at the structural separation question, right? Exactly. Separating out the network and making sure that a network is one business and then the service is another business. And if you do this structurally, so there are literally different legal entities with different ownership structures, uh, you would see where the investment goes. Yeah. And it could come from over the top providers, it could come from others who are interested because then the business case would stand on its own. It, it leads to another question that I'm kind of curious about. If we did this from first principles, thinking about network infrastructure, and thinking about services. How would you design this if you could sort of really do it from first principles? Would it be the industry structure we see today or would you prefer publicly owned networks? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it would be the structure we have today. I think you know, that's evolved because of uh, history and it makes much more logic. And in fact, actually you're seeing new companies come in the market. If you're in, here in London, you're, you're getting companies that are, their only business model is raising money to stick fiber in the ground and then and rent that out in all sorts of interesting, creative ways to people who need fiber access. So we are seeing pure play. They're, they're not doing any of the bells and whistles of phone calls or any of that kind of stuff or trying to make money out of it. So, so we are definitely seeing uh, some new business models coming in. I think that in a way is a lot cleaner uh, for somebody who's financing it. They can look at they can look at a business like at that. At the infrastructure business it, itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Here's the amount of money I'm spending on the infrastructure. Here's the amount of time it will cost, it, it'll take to recoup that investment if I get average revenue per user of X. And that's quite a predictable number uh, that we can say that's going to be. It's not dependent on usage, actually, because it, it's a subscription that you're you know, typically paying for per month. And then here, here's a bunch of other things that I'm going to do to optimize the network and make sure that uh, we're able to, to extract maximum value for that 
investment that we've made. So, so I think there is something kind of quite clean about that model that is probably where where we'd start with today. Public ownership is interesting. I mean, there's a, there's another sort of question for the European Union in particular, and something that um, when I was sitting on the other side, some of our people said to me, which is, you know, uh, when they were negotiating with telecoms companies in Europe, and this include again, they pay huge amounts of money the over the tops to telecoms companies for all kinds of connectivity that they have, data centers, where they sort of got their big fat pipes going on and off the network. And they said the thing that would make their job harder from an OTT side would be if there were consolidation in the European market. Because we're basically able, they said, to pick off lots of small telecoms companies who all got even a national champion, even Telia Sonera, the national champion of Sweden, is still a relatively small fish in a big pond. Uh, and because of that sort of reluctance to pool telecom services, this is very different in the US. You know, you deal with a Verizon, AT&T, really big companies with a lot of bargaining power. But Europe, so again, talk about the market design. Public ownership sort of suggests, again, there's very fragmented, atomized networks. Uh, they would have a different model, but another thing which probably is anathema to our friends at the European Commission is to say, well, why not have four or five, you know, very large telecoms companies providing services across the European Union and see how that goes in terms of being able to raise money and negotiate. And that's interesting because I think that provides an entirely different lens on this. We're saying that the Telecom Act, as it was passed, with the requirement of you know three or four telcos per European market, even though the European market is fairly consolidated and doesn't necessarily need to have a number of actors per market, going into that and arguing that consolidation is okay yeah. uh, would actually be a really interesting experiment. I, we probably won't see that because yeah. you're quite right. I think that there is, there is value in competition too for the end consumer. But, but you could imagine a world in which um, you offered telecos one of two things. Do you want the network fees or do you want the ability to consolidate? Which do you think they'll choose? Yeah, uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, the network fees is easy for your current structure. Yeah. But I actually think consolidating, again, if, if your problem is we worry about these big foreign companies uh, abusing our domestic companies, you make your domestic companies stronger. And as long as you're only in one country, <laughs> there's a limit to how strong you can get. So mm-hmm. I, say, I know there'd be downsides to that as well, but but I, if you wanted to sort of avoid that network fee debate, one way, one thing that certainly should be modelled out. I think the Commission's already said they don't want to do this. <laughs> but no, one thing to model out would be consolidation of big European. Yeah, I think Etno has argued for it, but failed. And so yeah. I think I think it's interesting. And and another thing that I think we should touch on is that we've talked about investing in infrastructure and network infrastructure. But there's no such thing as infrastructure. There's mobile telephony networks, there's fiber telephony networks. And you know what? I just got my Starlink approved for the country place in the archipelago. So satellite powered high bandwidth networks as well that are completely privately owned and funded and seem to be going quite nicely. So so here's, here's a question. When we talk about network infrastructure investment, is it a problem that we seem to always be thinking about fiber in the ground? 
You're right. So, so I think a certain amount of fibre is always needed in the ground for the backhaul uh, to whatever you know the end point is that's pushing stuff out there. But you're right. I mean, there's a, there's an unfinished revolution in endpoints, uh, and part of it is the satellite thing. But there's also the stuff we don't talk about so much anymore. But we did for a time. WiMAX. Uh, you know, there are lots of different ways to get data out to people. Mesh networks, uh, and they're still being developed. There's a lot of action in that space. Uh, so you're right. We should privately funded. By privately funded. Yeah. So we shouldn't narrowly focus on uh, just your traditional fiber into every single home, which which is valuable and is the gold standard. If if you're in a place where you can stick a fiber in every home, it's clearly the gold standard in terms of uh, being able to sort of reliably push data up and down. You know exactly how much data you can get up and down the fiber. Anything that's that's sort of shared uh, wireless infrastructure is going to be a little bit more hit and miss. And, um, but anyway, so, so we want that fiber, but we shouldn't be completely focused on it. And there are models in the future where it may be much more efficient. Imagine this, that you have a, a mini data center caching service just for your neighborhood. Uh, and that data center caching service uh, is connected by fiber. That's how it pulls everything down. But from there on out, it is all relatively low bandwidth wireless connections, which are perfectly fine because you're not pulling the data very far. And we found ways of you know compressing it and sharing it much more cleverly. So all of that is happening, you're right, privately. People are f- still figuring out ways to do this much more cheaply. Uh, and those are the competitors actually to the traditional telco. Some of those methods may take off. And this is interesting for several reasons. One of the reasons is that as the network topology changes, the investment patterns will change as well. Different parties will invest in different parts of the network to your idea about an unfinished revolution, which again challenges the basic notion that there is investment needed because it sounds so monolithic. We need to invest in networks. And you imagine almost that these networks are are single cables in the ground that are uh, bought by and dug by the, the, the telcos. But the, the other alternative it suggests, which is also interesting, is that you could imagine a world in, in which these six companies come together and say, we hear you. We understand this network connection is needed. And we're now investing in a satellite company that where we will provide, provide internet to all of Europe. That would also be an interesting way to solve the problem, to say that there is investment in networks. There's now a satellite network owned by these six companies that will deliver not only to the main cities, but actually is going to be able to deliver also to rural areas, which is the beauty of Starlink, right? I I get high bandwidth um, access on my little island. Uh, it's not my island, my, my little house on um, an island, yeah. yes. <laughs> and so I think when that happens, something really interesting happens because then you realize that the investment is not necessarily just, have, it doesn't have to be dug into the ground. Mm. And uh, wouldn't that be an interesting alternative for companies so, to suggest? Yeah, so depending on, uh, uh, the commission takes this into account, depending on the price as they set it, uh, the bean counters inside the big companies that have been targeted may sit down and go, well, for that amount of money, we can, we can rent or pay a forced rent to the telecoms companies, or we can invest in our own alternative network. Or in Starlink. In a Starlink, yeah. We'll just invest in some alternative They network. all go home, knock on Elon's door yeah. and say, hey, Elon, we would really like to invest in Starlink and 10x your capacity so we can reach our customers and make sure that the European Commission can sleep happily. I have to say, I think some of our Silicon Valley colleagues would rather be dependent on Deutsche Telekom than Elon Musk. So I think <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be Starlink. But. 
<laughs> well, that's a that's yeah. an interesting. Point. given recent events, <laughs> <laughs> there you go, there you go. Well, so um, summing this up, uh, we we're looking forward to the consultation. It's going mm -hmm. to be a really interesting set of discussions. It's going to, I think, to your point, uncover a lot of the political intentions and motivations behind tech policy. Perhaps clearer in many than many of the other proposals have done, because there's so much about this. That, that allows you to ask a second and third question that I think digs deeper. So mm -hmm. it is possibly not just going to be an interesting discussion for those of us who are telco and net neutrality nerds, but also for anyone who wants to understand the broader intent underlying tech policy from the European Commission. Yeah, I think it, it does starkly sort of throw up uh, the, the, the question of whether essentially we want to tax big American companies to fund European infrastructure. I mean, uh, they won't European frame it industrial way, policy, yeah. And European, yeah, and, and fund the European industrial policy. So, and, and so that, in that respect, it kind of plays into lots of other debates we're having at the moment. So it's going to be a good one, uh, not just for us We nerds. will come back to this. It sounds great. And you can, uh, thank you very much for listening. You can find this podcast on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you, everyone, and take care. <laughs>